Well, good evening, friends. It's a real joy and pleasure to be with you over this weekend. Um, I was uh, on the first week of uh, the Olympic team in London, and uh, what a tremendous opportunity that was. By the end of the week, we had 15 A4 sheets of contacts that we'd had. Now, these were all meaningful contacts, and um, uh, it, it really was thrilling throughout the whole week. And uh, the second week was very similar, and uh, a number of uh, folk actually um, made a profession of faith. And uh, I want to say, you might make this a matter of prayer. You know, uh, from my experience in London over a number of years, uh, taking opportunities there, I really do believe there is an opportunity there for a team of workers uh, to be working there in London every week of the year. Uh, it, the, the opportunity is, is immense. Uh, people come from all over the world to London, and um, uh, what an opportunity, what a missionary opportunity that is. Um, so, you might make just that a matter of prayer. Right, a little quiz. Um, see how you go. I see if you can name these people that I'm going to mention. Do you know the power that can change a man? who is of a special breed, who has had a special education, and who is a, a fast moving up in the ranks and being groomed for a quick promotion. He's 100% committed to his religion and excels above all others. He's, he's, given, he's given authority to uh, imprison and even put to death those who appear to be departing from the faith. And this he does with great zeal and great enthusiasm. Who could bring about such a change so that from a persecutor he becomes the persecuted? Who in later life goes on to describe his sufferings as nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what he had found in Christ. Got his name? What power could have caused such a change, such a transformation in this man's life? Let me take you to another man. A blaspheming individual who could hardly put a sentence together without using a swear word transformed to become a preacher of the gospel and who for his beliefs was imprisoned for years. What was the cause of such a change and transformation in that man's life? Got his name? Or let me speak of another man who's a blaspheming individual, a sea captain, who earned his money through the slave trade. Again, transformed to become a minister and a hymn writer. What was the cause of the change and the transformation in that man's life? Did you get his name? And what about the name of this church? We've got to go back 2,000 years and if we were to visit this church, we would find people who'd come from a whole variety of backgrounds, 
fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners. What brought about the change and transformation in these people's lives? Got the name of the church? It's the power of the gospel. Jesus Christ and the cross were presented to these people. And as the value of Jesus Christ is recognised and what he achieved on that cross acknowledged, so there have been those who have responded to the message and as a consequence their lives have been changed. This is the power of the gospel. And the gospel is just as powerful today as it has ever been. And if we're to see the power of the gospel working through our lives and reaching out to those around us, then we need to have a firmer grip of what the gospel is all about and what is embedded in this message. So I want us, first of all, to consider the person of Christ. Now, most here, if not all, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ, for who he claimed to be, the Son of God, who took upon himself the form of human flesh, he was born of a virgin. Now, we have a great number of people today who have great difficulty with this. And for those who do, consider this. Anyone who was born in such an unusual way as this would be expected to live a very unique life. We'd also expect such a person to have rather an unusual departure from this life. And in both cases, Jesus fills the bill. Jesus Christ is a hundred percent God. And at the same time, he's a hundred percent man. The miracles, the teachings, the life give evidence to his deity. And greatest of all is his resurrection, which proves without doubt that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. If this then is true, which obviously we believe it to be, there has to be a reason, there has to be a purpose for his coming. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, we are told very clearly what that purpose and reason was. Christ died for our sins. And this leads on to the second point which we need to major on this evening. How much value do we place upon the cross? The other day, while being involved um, in uh, an open-air uh, open meeting in Derby, an elderly man came up to me and, uh, and, and he pulled out, this, uh, pulled out of his pocket a silver cross. 
And he spoke of how much he had treasured it over a number of years. And how he'd looked to it to help him in many of the situations he'd faced in life. Like so many others today, he obviously looked upon the cross as a kind of a, a, look, a lucky charm. It's not the piece of wood or metal that we have to consider. However much um, decorated it might be. It's what Christ actually accomplished on the cross we need to evaluate. Have we any idea of the depth and volume of our sin that caused Christ to pray with such agony in the garden as he did. Drawing forth his sweat as great drops of blood. Just in the sheer contemplation of what he's about to suffer on that cross. On account of our sin. The sin that sadly we so often commit so lightly. Christ's death upon that cross was the only solution to our sin problem. Separating us from God in this life and for eternity if not dealt with. It was only by his precious blood that he could reconcile us to God and provide us with forgiveness and eternal life. Only by such a sacrifice as this could we be made right with God. But how aware are we of our own sinful nature? I mean, how much do we feel it? It seems that, you know, we can so easily identify and speak about the sins we see in others and yet have little or no feeling of conviction with regard to our own sin. And yet those who place the greatest value on the cross are those who are most conscious of their own sin. How much are we affected by the things that we see around us? Take, for example, the prophet Isaiah. In the first five uh, chapters of Isaiah, you'll find that Isaiah can speak eloquently about the sins um, and, and the hypocrisy uh, of his nation. But how much sense does he have of his own sin, of his own hypocrisy. He, I mean, he can speak about the pride of the people, but can he say in all truthfulness that he has no pride of his own? 
Isaiah, read it all there, it's in the first five chapters. Isaiah can speak of the people's rebellion and disobedience against the word of God. But what about, if he, what about his own disobedience? He can speak of the dis, de, de, deficiencies. They are in, in, in the national leaders. But does he have any sense of his own deficiencies? Isaiah can pour out woe after woe. It's all there in chapter 5. Woe after woe upon the people. And, and speak of the awful judgment that is going to come. But again, does he see any cause for woes in his own life? Isaiah again speaks of the Lord of hosts. He speaks of his glorious majesty, of his mighty power, his, his, his mighty hand in creation, his holiness, his righteousness, his wisdom. But how much of all this knowledge of God makes any real impact on his own life. And while we're pointing the finger at Isaiah, maybe we, we ought to look at ourselves. Do we really have any real comprehension of the seriousness of our own condition? The vileness of our own sin? The penetration that sin has made in every area of our lives? How much are we really aware of its presence in our lives, in our thought life? In our desires? And what of our knowledge of God? Does that make any real difference in our life? Yes, we may be able to sum up the nation's sin as Isaiah did in chapter 1 and verse 4 and 6. Listen to what he says. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they've not been closed or bound up or soothed. With ointment. Such a description as this conveys a pretty hopeless situation. But do we see and feel ourselves be in such a condition? The Bible speaks of our stubbornness and our unwillingness to respond to God's word. Oh, yes. We can sing the words often so easily. We can skim through the pages. But is there any real receptiveness to what we are reading here in the Word of God? The Bible speaks of a stiff-necked nature that refuses to acknowledge a higher authority of a natural bentness to go our own way. 
instead of God's way. We're all like, so Isaiah says there later on in his book, like an unclean thing and all our righteousness like filthy rags. The Apostle Paul says that we're all once, condu- we, we're all once conducted uh, ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. And Jesus tells us that the seat of all this corruption comes from the heart. Jesus says, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, comes from within and defile the man. George Muller said this, Sin is not, as some suppose, a comparatively little thing. It is a deadly spiritual disease, as the Word of God declares it to be. And no progress in education, no mental culture can eradicate it from the heart, nor change a deprived human nature. Have we ever really come to terms with the desperate condition we are in? And how utterly and completely helpless we are to do anything about it? Have we ever contemplated the awful judgment that was threatening to fall upon us on account of our sin? We will never be seen to place too much value on the cross until we've given much thought and meditation to these things. Continue to take Isaiah as an example. And again... We shall see in Isaiah's life there came a transformation. It was there in our reading, chapter 6. Listen to the words again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah sees the Lord. Up to this point, Isaiah has a knowledge of what God is like. But now he sees the Lord high and lifted up, glorious in holiness. 
And if we're ever going to get a vision of what God is really like, we have to get in more and more to the Word of God. The Word of God is the only book in the world that tells us what God is really like. So we must get into this book. And Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He saw the Lord as sovereign Lord. Above all other thrones, powers, dominions. Above all other kings and queens that have ever ruled on earth or ever will. Above all kingdoms, above all authorities. He is Lord. Of all, are we willing to acknowledge him as such? Isaiah saw the Lord as thrice holy and the Lord of hosts. He saw the Lord who is thrice holy and cannot be compared to any other in heaven or on earth. And if I am to have fellowship with this God, if I am to commune with this God, then I must be holy. As the Apostle Peter said in his letter, he said, He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy. For I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be like the Lord. Like the Lord in our conversations. Like the Lord in our thinking. Like the Lord in our pursuits. Like the Lord in, in the way that we conduct our lives. This is the beauty the Lord looks for. In our lives. And as it says in Psalm 46 and verse 11. Because he is your Lord. Worship him. And worship him. In holiness. That is the beauty. That God looks for. In each one of our lives. Isaiah is just overwhelmed by the sight of the Lord and at the same time just overcome by his own sinfulness. Isaiah is overwhelmed as he, he stands in the presence of the Lord Almighty and overwhelmed by the magnitude of his own sin. At some later date Isaiah exclaims, Who among us? shall dwell with a devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Listen to Isaiah's cry in response to what he has now seen and heard. He says, woe is me, he says, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
chapter 5, Isaiah, as we've already said, had been pouring out all the woes upon his own nation for the sins and the transgressions. Now, his eyes have been opened to the depths of his own sin. Contrasted with the pure radiance and purity of the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah sees himself as he'd never seen himself before. And Isaiah is a broken man. And then it's just at this point. It's just at this point. Isaiah hears the greatest news that could fall on human ears. Listen to the words again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin purged. Was this not music to Isaiah's ears? Is there anything else in life that Isaiah could have ever wished to hear more than this? His sin has been dealt with. Never now to be counted against him. As the psalmist says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. But how is this possible? Do you know there are many today who believe that, you know, providing they are genuinely sorry for the sins that they have committed, that God is able to forgive them. But you know the Bible teaches that cannot happen. For if God was to do that, then God would cease to be the God of justice that he reveals himself to be. If God is to forgive sin, he must do it in such a way that he is seen to be just. And the Bible, again, is the only book in the world that tells us how this can be done. The only book in the world that gives us any idea of the price that had to be paid for sin to be dealt with. A payment that was altogether beyond our ability to pay. A payment that only Christ himself could pay on our behalf. And the prophet Isaiah himself unfolds for us this great revelation. You've got your Bibles at hand. And if you're in Isaiah chapter 6, just flick over the page. Isaiah now is beginning to unfold to us how this can be done. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. 
The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Flick over another one or two pages, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Continue on to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God was to take upon himself the form of human flesh and come and live amongst us as a man. And that man was Jesus Christ. For God to go to such lengths as this, there has to be a reason, as we've said before. And Isaiah goes on to tell us what that reason and purpose was. You have to move over a few more pages to Isaiah chapter 53. And in verse 3 you'll read, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. As John tells us in his gospel, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. For what purpose? Would he wish to endure all this? Smitten by God and afflicted. For we are told that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The very one who created the heavens and the earth was taking upon himself the penalty for our sin. He who is pure and holy taking upon himself our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died the just for the unjust. Please the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus endured a lifetime of rejection. He endured the insults, the mockery and all the agony that the cross gave to him. And then while darkness covered the face of the earth, our sin was laid upon him. Sin in all its vileness, sin in its ugly shape and form, laid on him who knew no sin. Not all the human suffering combined together could compare with what Christ endured on our behalf. No wonder Christ cried out, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? This was the price that Jesus paid so that we might be forgiven. Justice has been satisfied so that forgiveness can be granted. Isaiah may not have had the fuller knowledge compared with what we have concerning the death of Christ. But what we can glean from this book is that he certainly had a measure of it. In measure, Isaiah had grasped the true value of the cross in such a way that his life was to be transformed. And what was Isaiah's response to the revelation that had been given? After hearing the news that his sin had been forgiven, Isaiah hears these words. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, without any hesitation, immediately responds. Here am I, says, send me wherever it may be. I'm willing to go. The rest of the book of Isaiah tells us how Isaiah responded to that call and the price he had to pay for it. He proclaimed the gospel. This is the message that all the people of the earth need to hear the greatest message that could fall on human ears. And Isaiah, whose heart is now full of gratitude for all that God has done to put away his sin, gives God that response. Here am I, he says. Send me. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do your bidding. And that same call comes to each one of us. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? The last command that Jesus gave to his disciples, found in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And do you know that those handful of believers who'd witnessed the tremendous price that had been paid to put away their sin would be those same people who would take this gospel as far west as Spain and as far east as India And over half a million people converted, all within 30 years. Isn't that remarkable? The ground that they covered 
in just 30 years. It makes you sit up and think, doesn't it? What are we doing today? What is the church doing today? In the light of all that Christ has done for us, so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God, how can we refrain from giving God the response that he deserves? The world around us is perishing. Men and women, boys and girls are in darkness and going to a lost eternity. They're ruined and they're blinded by sin. And most have no knowledge of their condition, nor of the remedy that God has provided. I stand before you as one of those who came all the way through school, all the way through college. I never met a Christian until I was 18 years of age, as far as I'm aware. The big wake-up call for me was when I was 17, one of my closest friends suddenly contracted a kidney disease and within six weeks, six, six, six weeks, had gone. And I stood at the edge of that graveside and I said to myself, that could have been me. Had it have been me, where would I be now? I got no answers. But that started me thinking. And I listened to various ideas and opinions, but one was as good as another. It was some six months later that I met a Christian for the very first time. And outside of these walls, there are hundreds and there are thousands of people that are in the same situation. They're in darkness and they're heading for a lost eternity. And there's no one there to tell them. Go into any precinct, in any town, in any city, and do a little survey of your own. Just ask a few questions. Ask a simple question like, um, do you have any idea what the Christian message is all about? (laughs) And you get a thousand and one different answers, but very rarely will you get the right one. That's the kind of ignorance that there is today. Out there, in the real world. And we're failing to communicate this vital message. This message, where God was prepared to lay aside his glory in heaven and take upon himself the form of human flesh. And come and live in this miserable world for 33 years and endure the sins and atrocities that were going on all around him. And then to go to a cross to make it possible for people to be reconciled to God and to be forgiven and to be given a place In glory. This is the greatest message that could fall on human ears. And God has entrusted it to us. What are we doing with it? Those early believers could come 
cover the ground that they did within 30 years. Just a handful. What can we do? The potential is enormous. If only every Christian would wake up to their responsibility. Yes, I do believe. We can reach this world in this generation. We can do it. We have all the technology, we have all the aids to be able to reach this nation and reach the world in this generation. Well, maybe not in mine. I haven't got much longer to go. (laughs) But those younger ones here, you have. You have. Are we willing to take up the challenge and go for it? In the light of all that Christ has done for us and the value that we place upon that cross, are we willing to give him that immediate response that he is looking for from our lives? Let me finish, if I may with a well-known quote from C.T. Studd, who along with six other Cambridge University students went out to China as missionaries. And C.T. Studd said this, he said, If Jesus Christ be God and die for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Over this weekend, will you be one who will consider, in the light of all that Christ has done for you, over this weekend, will you just find a quiet place somewhere and think over the challenges that come to us? From Isaiah chapter 6. And will you consider giving him that response? Here am I. Send me.